So welcome back, Kirkwood. We have a very exciting show for you today. We're going to be talking about a subject that is very near and dear to Jigisha and I's heart. Books. Yes, books. But specifically, we're going to be talking about libraries. That is the theme of this week's episode. And with that in mind, we have a couple of great guests. First up, best-selling author Fiona Davis. She's here to talk about her new book, The Lions of Fifth Avenue. It's a mystery set in the New York Public Library. Neat. We will also be joined by the president of the Missouri Library Association, Sydney Dudenhofer. She's here to join us for the first of a series Jagish and I are doing on basic civics lessons. And we're going to be talking about libraries and why they are important and why they're relevant. And then lastly, we'll also bring you fun and interesting facts about libraries. So it's going to be a fantastic episode. Stick with us. But before we go, I believe Jagisha has an important message. Absolutely. Don't forget, summer reading is still going on until August 31st. So you have plenty of time to log into those pages and start accumulating some prizes. So over the next few months, your KPL podcast plan on taking bi-monthly looks into important civic issues and lessons that might be on each of our minds. With each installment, Jagisha and I hope to learn something new and bring that love of learning to you, the listeners. To kick things off, we've invited Cindy Dudenhofer, the president of the Missouri Library Association, to join us and speak with the importance and relevancies of libraries and where we'll go in the future. Thank you so much for joining us, Cindy. Thank you for having me. It is our pleasure. So could you give us just a brief history of libraries? A brief history. <laughs> yeah, I know I'm, I'm asking quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> you got 60 seconds. There you go. So those <laughs> Three uh, hours later. Wrote on clay tablets. Um, <laughs> no, I'm laughing. I actually had an honor student that did her thesis on the history of libraries last year, so I sort of want to pull that paper out. So really, I work in an academic library. You know, academic libraries have been around forever. Public libraries in the United States, of course, started with good old Benjamin Franklin, though there were private libraries that lent my items out before that. But it's my hometown where I live right now in Fayette, Missouri, has a Carnegie Library. I know many, there's still quite a few of those hanging around Missouri and in the Midwest and different parts of the country. And I really feel like we're still kind of living on the roots of what Carnegie did. I feel like we need a modern Carnegie. So if there's anybody out there <laughs> that has a bunch of um, ill-gotten games that they would like to use to support the building of public libraries, that would be great. There's certainly really worse use for that money. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, we, we'll, I'll help you spend it, man, if you, if you really want to go and fund some new buildings and spaces. Because I know there are lots of small communities, especially, that could use a revitalization and the money's just not there. But I think we are lucky to have the public system that we do. And because it's so locally controlled, it's, it can be very representative of the populations it's serving, which is pretty cool. You know, even, even my library here serving an academic population also serves my community because our public library is not very large. It doesn't have a lot of funding. And so if there are gaps we can fill, we have a children's collection. Um, we let the public come in and use our computers and our makerspace if they make an appointment. And so, you know, it's nice that libraries can kind of fulfill whatever the need is of the populations they're serving, which is what I think is really special. And, and when you think about the history of libraries, that's not changed necessarily. You know, we're more of a public good now, obviously, than those first folks. Ashurbanipal, Pal, you know, hiding the tablets in his closet. But now, now we have those materials out there for our populations. And that's, that's my favorite thing about 
libraries is removing those barriers to access and connecting with those local populations. So that's not a history, but um, I threw in some historical things there. Yeah, that makes you, sense. <laughs> no, I was going to say that's. I feel like that's pretty perfect. We just did an interview with Kim Michelle Richardson, who wrote about the Pack Horse libraries. And, uh -huh. You know, FDR had set that up and they had no budget, no building, and they were getting donated books, but they made it work and they were still serving the population. I'm mean, willing to tackle rattlesnakes, which totally I'm not yeah. that dedicated of a library. So one of my favorite little weird libraries, too, is Lighthouse Keepers. I don't know if you guys have heard of this, but and the, the lighthouse, basically the what predated the Lighthouse Keepers Union created these little sort of pocket libraries for lighthouse keepers because of course they couldn't leave and um, they had to stay in those buildings. And so they had these circulating collections that were literally a box like a like a steamer trunk that locked and they would be filled with different titles and then they would just rotate through the different lighthouses on the East Coast. And so you would get, you know, number 1021 and then you would read all the books and then that one would come, someone would come and pick it up and take it to the next lighthouse keeper and you would get the, the other box. So they could have circulating materials for the betterment of their intellectual growth or whatever the mission was. Um, but I think it's so cool how libraries really kind of try to fill the need where they see one. So those folks that were totally isolated in a lighthouse still had access to reading materials and still, you know, shared things um, amongst themselves. So that's one of my favorite pocket library stories. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, I was not familiar with that, but I mean, that makes perfect sense. We're everywhere. <laughs> so question go? number two, it's fair to say that these days libraries are not just about lending books. Libraries have certainly evolved to become more about access, inclusiveness, and fostering a community space. This question is fairly comprehensive, but could you talk about why libraries are relevant more than ever for the communities they serve? Sure. This is sort of my overwhelming thought about libraries. You know, the Missouri Library Association, of which I am the current president, serves all kinds of libraries. Um, we don't separate ourselves out by academic public special. Our school library and friends are, are their own organization, but we try to work together as much as possible. And we all share the same common goal of removing barriers to access. Right. So no matter what work you're doing, be you, a, you know, a frontline public services librarian or a children's librarian or a research librarian or a cataloger, we're all removing barriers to access. And so I feel like as those barriers have changed, libraries have changed to, uh, to break those barriers down. And so now, you know, of course, in the time of COVID, we're seeing a lot of needs for hotspots, Wi-Fi, Chromebooks, you know, those sorts of things, or access to online learning and tutoring and just eBooks, different kinds of resources that way. So what do we do? We pop in to remove a barrier to access. We provide the materials people need to get the information that they desire. That's what libraries boil down to, to me. And I worked in a variety of type. I've been in academia for a while, but I've worked in a variety of types of libraries. And that's the mission that unites us, I think, is that we all want to make sure we can get the best information to the people that need it. You know, it's Ragnathan's, you know, every book it's reader, right? We've, we're still living that same tenant. We just embody it in different ways. We have a makerspace that's so people can code, they have access to robots. They can see why 3D printing is cool and how it can help our world in that little pocket, right, of this campus or wherever library they're in. It's still connecting people with the resources they need and removing barriers to access. That's I think, what I always go back to. Well, I was going to say, I, I think that, yeah, the moving to uh, barriers of access is, is, is a fantastic point of being, and completely agree. In, in, I've been with the Kirkwood Public Library but for about five years, and in that time, it is, it's amazing the evolution 
with that in with that in thought like because when i started you know there was a different fine structure and in just the past half decade alone that's completely changed and i've seen so many different things change to make it easier for patrons to get in and enjoy the different services that libraries provide right because collections are important and resources are important but if there are barriers to getting to those collections right you're not going to get usage and, and people can't find what they need that's an academic library fight all the time because there's you know content versus access and i know when discovery layers were becoming a big thing for all kinds of libraries you know discovery layers have a tendency to be very expensive and they don't they don't add content right they just add tools to access and so there's that sort of dichotomy there between okay how am i going to spend my dollars i well i'm not i can't get quite as much content but I can make the, the content I have much easier to discover. And so, you know, how do we spend our money there? Are we being good stewards if we just increase access and we don't increase content? And that's sort of the ongoing conversation between all types of libraries. But I know when you are working with people with research specialties, of course they want content, 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 but the students that are attached to that research content maybe need help <laughs> overcoming those <laughs> barriers. And so then it becomes really important to make sure we're, we're supporting all the population well said <laughs> with a particularly overwhelming question <laughs> with the time we have such a complex thing and we're basically summing it up in just a few minutes <laughs> that's okay the world lives on sound bites yeah that's true that is true <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for better or worse <laughs> right <laughs> I'm looking forward to the day when libraries have virtual reality and augmented reality. That's like the next level option. That's what I'm looking forward to, where you can be at home and get the tour of your library space and just virtually pull books off shelves. We're working on that right now, actually, in my library, if I can like tell a story. So we have a, we have a maker space here, like I said, in our, our digital uh, technology library. Well, she used to be a librarian. She's not anymore. She's like an educational technologist. She used to be a reference librarian and she had you know, bought the equipment to actually make some of those virtual spaces and so they did a tour and they can't pull books off the shelf yet um but they're using some some layered reality things to be able to do touch points um, mm -hmm. so you can actually click on things I and mean, it's a really exciting project um, and she's been working really hard on it and we do a virtual escape room kind of thing in the same way here in my library so i'm really interested in ar and vr mm -hmm just from a personal side and um, have done some tech tools kind of speaking and, and that's really what I've tried to focus on. So we're also building our library in Animal Crossing like everybody else is right now. Too, oh, so. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. Uh, my teacher uh, librarian's doing that, so. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's just so great. I know the uh, Kirkwood Public Library too is currently looking at how to, how to do virtual browsing and so much of our programming has become adapted lately in the uh, in the face of COVID. And so it's just so great that, uh, and it kind of leads into what I was gonna bash next was that, you know, libraries have to remain adaptable and on our toes. And this pandemic has certainly made that a necessity. Going forward, how do you think like libraries are gonna evolve and remain relative? What do you think in the next 10 years, 20 years for uh, for yeah. our professions? I do feel like we're very adept at, at evolving, you know, the very few professions can evolve as quickly as we can, because it goes back to that point of need, you know, we are very good at telling what our communities need, and very good at filling those needs creatively. I also, I call it DIY librarian syndrome, I feel like 
folks that are drawn to the library profession oftentimes themselves are very adaptable or like taking on new tasks or creating new services or not scared necessarily. It's a growth mindset profession for sure, especially I think the folks coming in, at least that's been my experience. So I've been in libraries for about 20 years now and I just see the new folks coming in. They're so creative and so adaptable and that's what we need. So I feel like we have to do a really good job of recruiting those kinds of folks to come into our profession. So people that aren't scared to change quickly, people that aren't afraid to try new things and really focus on having that growth mindset. And then the other piece is just listening to our communities. So if I make a library, that's what I think I need or what I think everybody needs, it's not going to be as useful if I really, as if I really listen to my population. So, you know, continuing to represent people so they can see themselves in the collections, whatever that looks like. So if that looks like, you know, Pokemon Go programs were all the rage, what, like a year ago? And then it was Fortnite. And then, like I said, now it's Animal Crossing. And then, then we have to go to hotspots. And then we have to go to, yeah, well, maybe we'll get VR stuff. We just have to continue to look and listen. I don't really necessarily see that there's some giant trend at this point that's going to say, here's what all libraries are going to look like in 10 years. But I feel like we just have to do a really good job of listening to what our people want to stay relevant. And as long as we do that, will still be needed. There are always going to be folks that aren't going to have access to those things at home. And there are always going to be things that we'll be able to provide service to or training in that they, they can't get anyplace else if we listen to our people. We follow the research trends and if we, we really considerately talk about what our communities need. Wonderful. Yep, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I have any. I mean, I can agree 100%. <laughs> And we definitely learned that just in having recent crisis with COVID. I mean, I, I feel like us library, the libraries have really pivoted into mm -hmm. providing these virtual programs, Ryan and I doing more podcast type stuff. And we had a lot of our youth librarians doing story times on Instagram. And so we got a bit of buzz with the dial a story for people who didn't have internet uh, access. Uh-huh. I didn't mean to step on your train of thought. Jesus. No, I'm I, sorry. I was just saying that's a that's a throwback from when I was little. You could call in on the phone and listen to the recorded librarians. And we, I mean, we thought it was so much fun. And that's all it was, calling in. But that's cool. Yeah, that was yeah, a brain child. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, our, our, our new director had a fantastic idea. I, 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 I remember our new director. So <laughs> oh, yeah. She's great. He's been a pal of mine for a while. <laughs> She's probably listening. Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> I love her, so it's okay. <laughs> Agreed. When she sold the uh, the dial a story as a as a as remember dial a song, it's like I do. Mm -hmm. And so, but yes, to go back to the point that, yeah, the was making the, pan the pandemic has essentially kept us on our toes and we constantly keep evolving and experimenting. Right. I think, I think too, though, to give ourselves a pen on the back, like librarians like to do. A friend of mine who's in California, John Jackson, and I know y'all should follow him on Twitter, but he made a really good point that, you know, we didn't have to pivot quite like other organizations had to pivot because our tools and our resources most often were already accessible virtually. You know, we already had these things in place. We've been serving those distance populations for a long time. Yes, we increased services and yes, we marketed and, and pushed out those things that might help those people that couldn't travel. But most likely your library already had audio audiobooks and ebooks for download. 
and might have already had a YouTube presence and might have already had a podcast. So we were able to kind of capitalize very quickly on the skills that we already had because we knew we needed to address these things before now. And it made me really proud of our profession and the, the libraries all over the country. But Missouri did such a great job of just popping into that point of need so quickly because we knew what we were doing and we've been there for a while. And so we were able to model some behaviors for other places because we'd already been there. Tools and things that needed to kind of catch up and see what we were doing. Yay for us for like listening and being aware of the trends and, and sort of being in those spaces already. Yes, definitely. The person, the other librarians, right? That, yeah, we were, it was very easy for us to pivot because we were already in position to do it. We're cool. We are. <laughs> <laughs> that we are. <laughs> Now let's all put our sunglasses on simultaneously. Yeah. Grow up to be librarians, kids. <laughs> <laughs> it is a fantastic profession. I think so. Uh, would you uh, be so kind to tell us a little bit about the Missouri Library Association? Um, sure. So the Missouri Library Association is the professional association for librarians in Missouri, just like the name says. And like I mentioned earlier, it covers um, public and academic and special librarians. And then um, there's a separate organization called MASL, Missouri Association of School Librarians, that covers our school librarian friends. And we do try to kind of cross-pollinate when we can, and we have separate conferences. But those two associations serve the state. I'm very proud of the Missouri Library Association. You know, we've done a lot of sort of crisis management this year. We had a censorship bill we had to deal with at the beginning of the year, which was an attack on representation and collections for the most part, which was... A little daunting to deal with. Um, sometimes Missouri is not the most open place for different kinds of populations. Thankfully that didn't go very far so we were able to kind of fight that down. But it's an example of how the association supports libraries across the state. So we as an organization have a legislative advocate. We were able to mobilize our legislative committee and our leadership to go and address that very, very quickly. And that's one of the services that the association provides. So this wasn't just for me or for, you know, Dan Brower, the head of the legislative committee, it was for all of us because that bill would, affected every, would have affected every library in the state. And so we, we represent the state libraries, librarians and libraries at the government level. The other things we do, we provide training opportunities. There are interest groups that provide programming ideas and just kind of networking. There's a very strong hive mind of knowledge around different topics. So it's a great place to kind of connect with colleagues that do similar work. Our conference this year is going to be virtual because of the pandemic, but I'm really excited about it. The board, some of the board members, including myself and our president-elect Cindy Thompson, it's the year of the Cindy's, are <laughs> kind of spearheading that. But we have some really exciting speakers lined up. And we're doing a very um, sort of malleable format because we don't, we still don't know what exactly what our workflows are going to look like in the fall. By October, who knows? Who knows what things will be going on? That's so, anyone's guess. Right? <laughs> so we wanted to be able to make sure people could pop in and out and they could pick out the things that they were, that were most interesting or most applicable. So it's $25, very inexpensive. For three days of content, we're going to have all invited speakers. And so I'm really excited about that event. So we're calling that together apart. And there'll be some networking opportunities and discussion groups and things as well. And the registration is going to open for that on August 1st. So that'll be coming out for that. Where would we go to register for that? So you would go to molibe.org. That's our website. It will also be on our Facebook page and on our Twitter. And if you don't follow Missouri Library Association on social media, you totally should because our social media folks um, are awesome right now. They're doing a great job of pulling content and sending out things that would be relevant to, to us all in this weird time that we live in. 
So everyone should do that. Go follow us. But we're just, we're really here to sort of unite and support and make sure that we're all in this together and to provide advice and mentoring and, and programming and all of those things. Um, so if you're not an MLA member and you're interested, check out the website. Um, you can email me anything at mlapresident.molab.org. And you guys can maybe put my contact stuff in the linkity dinks, whatever it is that y'all do with the podcast. We do. We'll, we'll, we'll put it in the show notes. All right. Show notes. That's what they're called. Show notes. <laughs> <laughs> Not linkity dinks. Um, well, that's the no, official I like your word. word better. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's important to have, to have connections like that within the profession. And like I said, librarians are, are, are librarians are pleasant like people to hang out with. That's been my experience. Yeah. And so it's good to have those connections. So before we go out, did you want to provide any last thoughts about libraries? Something that you know we should all be, we should all take away and be thinking about. Oh, and what are you reading? Oh well, that's oh. fair. I mean, yeah, we love it asking that question. So I'm actually reading this book because I'm designing a um, technology ethics class for my master students here on my campus. Um, Would you give us the uh, the title and yes. maybe the author? So it's Teach Boldly: Using EdTech for the Social Good by Jennifer Williams. And it's a really cool book because a lot of times when you think about teaching ethics, people do it by case studies and by like, oh, the scary things that can happen. And this takes the point of teaching ethics from a very positive, how can we use technology to promote social justice? What can we do um, to make sure that we can have equity of access with technology, those sorts of things. So I wanted to teach the class from a very positive point of view rather than, you know, look at the scary AI that's going to steal our whatever. And so that book's been a great book. I just got the new Hank Green book too, but I can't remember what the name of it is. A uh, Beautifully Foolish Endeavor? Beautifully Foolish Endeavor. Yeah, the first one was an absolutely remarkable thing. And then this one is A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor. So I just got that. So that's the fiction I'm going to read next. And my, my last thought, I'm defending my dissertation tomorrow. So my last thought is going to be when you think about the people you're helping and connecting them to the information and the resources they need, also remember where they're coming from. And the way that their information-seeking behavior and the way that their needs have been constructed by their social context, by, by the advantages and the barriers that are around them, and connect them with what they need without judgment. If somebody needs, you know, books that you don't think are age-appropriate, maybe they're learning to read, or maybe it's an advanced reader, or maybe we all come from these different places. Um, and my research is really showing that we have such a diverse set of behaviors and, and environmental factors that affect the way we can perceive information and find it and process it, that it's always good to kind of have a graceful heart as we look at what people need and what we connect them to. Um, so remove those barriers and fill the, fill the point of need. Fight the good fight. Very well said. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. So our guest today was Cindy Dudenhofer. She is the president of the Missouri Library Association, and we were so grateful that she came up to us today to talk a little bit about one thing that we love greatly, libraries. Cindy, thank you so much. Thank you guys for having me. Good luck. Do you love wonderful historical fiction and iconic libraries? Then Kirkwood, you don't want to go anywhere because our next guest is award-winning and best-selling author Fiona Davis. Her latest title, The Lions of Fifth Avenue, is the story of two strong female protagonists, the New York Public Library, and a thrilling theft. It hits the stores and your Kirkwood Public Library next week. Fiona, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thrilled to be here. First question is, spoiler free, could you tell us a little bit about your new book? 
You bet. So it's set in two timelines, in 1913 and 1993, at the New York Public Library. And in 1913, it's from the point of view of the superintendent's wife, Laura Lyons, who is raising her family, her husband and her two children, live in an apartment in the library. And this is an apartment that actually existed. But she feels like she's surrounded by all this knowledge and yet feels stifled. She wants more of the outside world. And so she applies to Columbia Journalism School and starts kind of looking at the, the, the city outward. And that really changes her. And then in 1993, it's from the point of view of a curator who's putting together a rare book exhibit at the library. And one of her books goes missing. And she's drawn into these series of book thefts that occurred 80 years ago, as well as a tragedy that happened to the superintendent's family back then. And I like to say it's about the magic of the written word and the power of women's voices. That sounds terrific. And I love the idea of the live-in superintendent. I was somewhat like vaguely aware of it before, you know, having heard of your book. But the idea of growing up in a library, I would completely adore and want that for my own childhood. As part of your research into the, this, did you get a chance to look at any of these former places? And, and maybe what, what is New York Public Library doing with those former places? What is it converted to? Yeah, sure. So I was able to get a behind the scenes tour in the library, which was fantastic. And, and as I said, the real superintendent lived there with his wife and three children. And their daughter was born in the library. Um, they lived there wow. from I think, around 1910, and they were there for 30 years. Uh, the kids talked about how they used to play baseball in the reading room using books as bases until they got in trouble. Um, and so there's some really wonderful real life stories. My family is fictional, of course, because that way I can create a, a mystery plot, which I do love. Um, and yeah, so in the, the apartment right now, it is in the past, it was a four bedroom apartment. And now it is offices and storage. But the, you know, the original doors are still there, you can get, still get a sense of these enormous windows that were in all the bedrooms that overlook the south courtyard in the library. And so you still get a real sense of the flavor of the place. Very nice. I don't think I've been to the library. So now I'll have to, at some point when this is all over and we're able to travel, I, I'm going to have to go and take a tour and have a look at the, the apartment because I had no idea there were a living of it. So yeah, they don't give tours to the apartment unless you kind of have a connection, unfortunately. Although who knows, maybe if the book's successful, they'll recreate the apartment, which would be so cool because it is administrative. Yeah, yeah, it is administrative offices. Um, but it's, it's really, I, I think you guys probably have an in being that you work for a library. Hopefully. <laughs> in the book, uh, Laura gets swept up by the Heterodoxy Club, which is an actual uh, group back in 1912. So could you tell us a little bit about this club? Yeah, sure. So the Heterodoxy Club was this women's group that um, began in Greenwich Village in 1912. It was founded by a, a feminist named Marie Jenny Howe. She was a feminist organizer, a writer, a suffragist. They would have every two weeks, they would have a luncheon on a Saturday at this restaurant called Polly Halliday's Restaurant in an upstairs room there. And women were encouraged to really speak freely there about women's rights, the right to vote, birth control, even things like free love, which we consider kind of a 1970s phenomenon. Mm -hmm. But even in the 1910s, they were really talking about what, what role women should have in society and kind of opening it up beyond the traditional roles. It attracted icons like Agnes de DeMille and um, Charlotte Perkins Gilman. And it, it really was this amazing hotbed of, of a place where, where women could really talk freely 
about what was going on in their lives. Sounds definitely ahead of its time. Yes, right? Exactly. <laughs> so the next question we have is, is in regards to how you come up with these wonderful ideas. All your readers know that your books are based around the beautiful and famous New York landmarks. So do these landmarks come first or did the story come first? With each one, the landmarks have come first and they range from the Dakota to Grand Central Terminal to the Barbizon Hotel for Women to the Chelsea Hotel. And each one I've, I've kind of been directed towards a building either because I'm interested in it or I came upon it one day and thought, oh, that's a good place. Or with the New York Public Library, it was reader ideas. As I was giving author, author talks around the country, so many people would come up to me and say, hey, how about the New York Public Library? That I felt like, okay, I have to investigate. Um, even though I wasn't sure if it would work as a setting because I didn't think people lived there. You know, a residence mm -hmm. has a little more going on like the Dakota or the Barbizon Hotel for Women. But then I learned about this apartment complex and thought, oh, this might work. And, and I'm so glad I, I followed my readers' ideas because it, it just was so much fun to research and write, I have to say. Yeah, it sounds great. Did you find anything surprising when you're doing some of this research about the landmarks or just the public library? Any interesting tidbits? Yeah, you know, I've learned, for example, that if you're an author with a book contract, you can apply to get a desk in a room called the Allen Room at the New York Public Library. And it's for writers with book, club, book contracts, and you can sit there and research and you get books delivered to your desk. And so it was incredible, oh, nice. right? To be writing about the building that I was writing inside was incredible. And also what surprised me was just how helpful the librarians were about everything. You know, I was reading old um, women's magazines and old books, trying to get a flavor of the time. And the funniest thing was in an early draft of the book, it's not there now, but in an early draft, there was a dead body. And I emailed one of the librarians and I said, if you had to hide a dead body in the library, where would you put it? And she wrote back with not only the location, but a, a floor plan with exactly where to stash it, which I thought was just <laughs> service to a T. That's fantastic. Oh, that's awesome. You know, as a librarian, I've never gotten that question, but... <laughs> you get something different every day. Yeah, and that's what I love about the character in the 1990s section, Sadie, who started off in, and she now works for this kind of private collection called the Berg Collection of Rare Manuscripts. But she started out as a librarian, you know, in the circulation department and getting questions about when did the Statue of Liberty turn green? And she loves the fact that she can always find an answer. In the book, she's considered kind of the top um, reference librarian because she always finds the answer. It sounds an interesting character. Are you currently working on anything at the moment that we can get a sneak peek of? Sure, I am working on a book um, that is set at the Frick Collection. And that is a museum on Fifth Avenue. It's kind of a smaller gem of a museum in New York. And it was owned by the Frick family, Henry Clay Frick. And after his wife passed away, it became a museum. And so here again, it's so interesting for me that, that dichotomy between a place where people lived and then became a museum. And so it's two separate timelines and just how those two people, the, the people involved and the places really um, transformed over time. So what are you currently reading or what do you think we should be reading? Is there anything interesting in your uh, stack? I mean, I have a large stack, so I imagine you do too, but is there anything you'd recommend? Yeah, you know, if you love New York um, buildings, there's a book called The Plaza by Julie Satow, 
which is all, it's nonfiction. It's an account about the Plaza Hotel, but it reads like fiction because she really talks about its history and all the colorful characters who've moved through it. And that's a fun read. And then also there's a book called The Daughters of Foxcote Manor by Eve Chase, who's an English writer, which I just loved. I thought it was, it's just such fun historical fiction in multiple time frames. So if that's what you like, I highly recommend it. it I couldn't put it down. And, and then there's um, The Girl with the Louding Voice by Abby Dare, um, which came out a, a couple months ago and is just an incredible tale and just transports you, you know, out of the U.S., which is kind of interesting. Oh, nice list. I'm going to have to add that on to our um, the blurb. <laughs> our recommended reading. Yes, please do. There, you can't go wrong. I'm sure you guys are inundated with books. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I can't keep up. <laughs> More. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> if some of our patrons wanted to learn more about you, Fiona, and the books you've written, what would you recommend they do? Oh, you can go to my website, FionaDavis.net, and on Facebook, I'm um, Fiona Davis author, and then on Instagram, I'm Fiona J Davis. And all of those, um, I'm constantly updating and there's lots of fun information about the library and background and some of my research. And so I really hope you, uh, you join me there. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's really fun, the interaction between readers, especially in this time of COVID. Social media has really stepped in as a way to reach readers um, and, and also interact with other authors in a way that's so dynamic and, and is really saving the day. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Now, you have an event coming up right as your book comes out with the New York Public Library. So you want to just tell us a little bit about that? And can um, our listeners also follow up with that? Yes, it's listed on my website. I am so excited about this. We're doing a virtual event. It'll be by Zoom with the New York Public Library. And the moderator is Zibby Owens of, of Moms Don't Have Time to Read podcast. And she'll be asking me questions. We'll be talking about um, the book. And it's on um, August 4th at 8 p.m. Eastern time. And anyone can register. If you go to my website, it'll direct you to the registration page. If you wanna order a book from the New York Public Library bookshop, there's a link there on the registration page to do that and you'll get a signed book plate inside it. So it's almost as if I signed the book for you. And, uh, and I, I can't wait, it should be really fun. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. All right, uh, so before we go out here, uh, was there anything else that you'd like to tell us, Fiona? I'm so excited to get this out in, in the world. And, and then the book is dedicated to librarians everywhere. And libraries for me was such an important part of growing up. We moved around a lot. And the library was the one consistent thing from town to town that I could rely on. And so it, it really is my way of, of giving back for all those books I read when I was very young. I love libraries. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I do too, but I might be biased. <laughs> <laughs> Our guest today was Fiona Davis. Her newest book, The Lions of Fifth Avenue, will be available at your Kirkwood Public Library and wherever beautiful books are sold on Tuesday, August 4th. Can't wait till next week? Well, you can check out Fiona's previous novels right here at your Kirkwood Public Library. Fiona, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This was great. So this week, instead of doing our regular book recommendation section, Jagish and I have decided to take a road trip visiting the most unique libraries that we could find all across the world. And so we're starting off by going to the Haskell Free Library in Opera House, 
which sits directly between the United States and Canada. You can walk in from Quebec and walk out into Vermont. You don't need a passport to cross the literal line running through the building, but you do have to return to your country of origin or risk fines. Oh, gosh darn it. <laughs> it's not as easy as all that. So now, Jagisha, take the driving wheel. Where are we going to next? We are going to Colombia because donkeys can be librarians. What? Librarian donkeys? Yes, this is a great idea. It's called the Biblioboro program that happens in rural Colombia. And basically, there's a librarian and a donkey, and they deliver books to kids. It's a mobile library, a very unique mobile library. That does. I wonder if they'll let us take this librarian donkey onto our next stop, which is going to be in McAllen, Texas. You don't have to go to the Library of Congress to feel overwhelmed by a library. The McAllen Public Library is housed in a converted Walmart location and might be the largest single-story library located in this country. It's huge, like an auditorium. All right, let's get out of Texas. Where to next? Well, we're going to Kenya. So, because did you know that camels can also be librarians? What? Another animal librarian? That's right. The Library Camels of Kenya. These camels carry both books and camping gear for traveling librarians as they travel across the desert. And the caravan visits nomadic communities to help improve literacy rates. Oh, that's fantastic. And in keeping with visiting animals, I want to visit one of my favorites which is Winnie the Pooh. Jagisha, where should we go to meet Winnie the Pooh? Well, let's see. I think it's the Hundred Acre Woods, isn't it? Ordinarily, yes. But you can actually visit Winnie the Pooh at the New York Public Library. So as we all know, A.A. Milne purchased a teddy bear for his son, Christopher Robin, back in 1921. But what you may not know is that Winnie and his companions Eeyore, Tigger, Kanga, and Piglet have been owned by the New York Public Library since 1987, where they are displayed much to my excitement and much to, I'm sure, everyone else's excitement. Ooh, that is neat. So maybe they should turn the New York Public Library into the Hundred Acre Woods. Oh, bother. <laughs> well, we have one more place to visit, and that is Mexico City. So they have this enormous, ginormous library. It is called the Vasconcelos Library. It is 409,000 square feet. It is a mega biblioteca or mega library. It has over 500,000 volumes that overlooks an open courtyard. I bet we can get lost in it for days. Just camp in there. Well, we can't stay for too long because we've got to get back to work at my favorite library, the Kirkwood Public Library. Let's go back home. I don't know. These donkeys are really cute. I kind of want to stay in Colombia. Yeah, we can do that too. <laughs> all right, Kirkwood. Well, I hope you liked our little silliness there. <laughs> but these are all just amazing, wonderful libraries throughout the world. And in our research for these, we found so many others that we didn't include. It is definitely worth taking a look out there. Libraries are such unique, beautiful places. They're always worth visiting. Well, Jagisha, I think that was another fantastic, fun episode of the Kirkwood Public Library. It was. I really enjoyed learning all about the New York Public Library 
And of course, our civics lesson with Cindy Dudenhofer, the MLA president. Yes, I'd definitely like to extend great big thanks to all our guests who came out today and talked to us about well, our favorite subject, libraries and books. So as we go out, we want to share with you a quote from Albert Einstein. The only thing you absolutely have to know is the location of the library. I think that's true. Thanks, Albert. We'll see you next week.